If you're following in your uh, note packet, we're on page 13. We're still on the front end of Paul's four-chapter discussion of liberty, of freedom in Christ. Uh, let's do a little bit of review because a, a couple of, of you um, uh, weren't here the last week or two. But the, the section, again, that begins <clears throat> on the matter of liberty in Christ with chapter 8 and continues through chapter 11. The principle that governs the use of Christian liberty is stated in verse 1 of chapter 8. Love balances our use of liberty. Liberty in Christ, freedom in Christ, has not anything to do with the freedom to sin. It's the freedom, the liberty, if I may put it this way, the responsible liberty we have in the non-moral or amoral areas of life. <clears throat> and we talked a lot about that. And Paul uh, talks as well, we spent a good bit of time last week on this issue of conscience. Do you remember that? We had quite a bit of, of a discussion about it. That. He mentions that term three times in chapter 8. So therefore, it must be an important word. And we talked about that as a set of convictions that we develop in these non-moral areas of life uh, that for us is a wise, uh, discretionary, discerning way to live our lives. And that in that, we should be, and probably should use the word, must be willing to give up our rights for the sake of that person who has a weak conscience, whose conscience is, in, in most cases, it's due to the fact they've just put their faith in Christ, but nonetheless that we are willing to give up our rights for the sake of that weaker brother um, or sister. All right, now that kind of summarizes our, is that okay? Everybody with us? So chapter 9, which I want to begin this morning, it's really quite a remarkable passage because Paul offers an example of someone who does this very thing, that is giving up his rights for the sake of someone else. And who does he use as an example? Himself. Himself. So I want you to be very careful with me as we look at this, how, um, how he sets this up. One of the things that, and, and we know this uh, in, in a number of his letters, one of the things that must have plagued Paul was the fact that he claimed to be an apostle, but there were many people who didn't believe that or didn't see him as an apostle, didn't regard him as an apostle. So if you look at verse 1 of chapter 9, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? Now there's four questions there, four rhetorical questions. So let's kind of take them apart because it's interesting that he starts this as he's transitioning from his teaching about freedom and conscience to now an example, a positive example, an affirming example. But he begins these with questions. So it must have been necessary for him to do that because of what some of the people in Corinth were saying. Maybe it was something like this. You know, that Paul, he's really not an apostle. So if he's not an apostle, what's the corollary with that? You obviously don't understand what I'm asking. 
if he is not an apostle, what's the consequence of that? What's one of the potential results of that? Doesn't carry authority. Doesn't carry authority. We don't have to listen to him. I mean, he might say some good things, and like a lot of people, everybody has something good to say. But if he is an apostle, maybe I should back up and even talk a little bit about that. An apostle, that's really the Greek word apostolon, we're just transliterating it. An apostle is someone commissioned by Christ with his authority based on the fact that you've seen Christ. So does Paul match up with those? Well, if you look at the questions, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? How could he make that claim? He wasn't among the 12. He wasn't in the upper room. He wasn't with Jesus for his three years in public ministry. So how can he claim, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Is, I think I don't think anybody's here, Jim. Would you go out and see it? <laughs> How can he claim that? Did he see Christ? Yes. When did he see him? You said yes. I'm, I'm thinking of the vision he had. All right. Do you remember when that was? On the road what? to Damascus. On the road to Damascus. For Damascus. Yep. He had those papers from the high priest in Jerusalem to go up to Damascus and put down that little church that's growing up there. And on that way, on that road up to Damascus, Jesus met him. And that's when Christ set him apart and commissioned him. And remember, among other things, his primary role was an apostle to the Gentiles. So, are you with me? Do you understand? It is, for some reason, and he doesn't explain to us why, that for some reason he must have felt the necessity to remind them of his apostolic authority. And so, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? That would be a rhetorical question that answers the question, am I not an apostle? And then third, fourth question, are you not my work in the Lord? Um, that's a very practical piece of evidence. Look at what's happened in you guys' lives. You're my work. I planted the church. You're growing in Christ. Is that not evidence, too, that I'm an apostle? So you see what he's doing? He's establishing by these rhetorical questions what he must have felt the need to do, that he is an apostle. And if he is an apostle, then he has apostolic authority. One more point about verse 1. Why does he begin with the question, am I not free? free in Christ but a freedom and a liberty that goes along with being an apostle because by definition by its very intrinsic meaning meaning liberty and freedom imply certain rights I mean we know that as Americans (laughs) it's in our founding documents declaration bill of rights that kind of thing so I'm, I'm hoping you're tracking with me here because it's really, it's really quite foundational to this chapter. He must establish that he is an apostle with apostolic authority who also has apostolic rights and freedom. And he does that by means of these rhetorical questions. So in verse 2, if to others I'm not an apostle, implying that, 
probably even in Corinth, there are many who doubt he's an apostle, won't listen to him. At least I am to you. For the reason, you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Seal is uh, it's a very, very, very wonderful word, actually. But this seal means uh, the mark of authority, the mark of that which is um, validating and proving that you are someone of authority. When a, when a uh, Caesar sent out a message to someone very personally, he would you know, put the message in a scroll and then seal it with his seal. That meant that's the authority and the power and the position of Caesar. And by the way, if you opened that and you weren't the intended person, that was a capital offense. <laughs> but it also means ownership. So Paul is saying, you guys in Corinth are the proof, the seal, uh, the evidence of who I am, an apostle. And that's my defense, verse 3. All right, now, he felt the necessity to do that. Presumably others maybe doubted it. But he had to affirm that and prove that and show that because of the next part of the paragraph. He itemizes his three rights as an apostle. There were three apostolic rights that he had. Now, you and I could do the same thing. We could itemize our rights and liberties as an American citizen but also our rights and liberties as Christians. There are many of those. But Paul's not doing that. He's not itemizing his rights as a Roman citizen, because he was. He's not itemizing his rights as a Christian, which he could have. He's itemizing his rights as an apostle. And he puts the first person plural, just putting himself in that group called apostles. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Well, now, in the context of what we've been studying, he doesn't just mean the right to have breakfast <laughs> or the right to drink a glass of water. What is he saying? Well, eat or drink food sacrificed to idols. Yeah, the, the kind of freedom that he's been talking about. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. I have, just like you, the complete freedom in what I eat and drink. The kosher laws no longer apply because Christ's work's finished. He completed that. It is fulfilled. So for him to say that as an apostle, as an apostle but also as a Jew, was a profound statement. There was not one Pharisee in Jerusalem in A.D. 55 when Paul wrote this letter that would have agreed with him as a Jewish Pharisee. You're nuts. You're not free to eat and drink whatever you want. You're a Jew. Paul said, I am a Jew, but I'm a completed Jew. The Messiah has come. He's fulfilled everything. The kosher laws are done. So for Paul to say that in verse 4 is extraordinary. For you and me, that doesn't mean anything. It's almost like, well, what's he saying that for? But that is very important when you understand the context. Are you with me? Second right, which is really, again, it's almost um, unexpected. 
Again, first person plural, he's lumping himself with all the other apostles. Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife? Even as the rest of the apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas? All right, let's, let's look at those. The rest of the apostles, who would that be? Well, the original 12 Plus, there are some others that are called apostles. Paul would be one of them, but Barnabas is called an apostle. And the brothers of the Lord, well, Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, lists some of the brothers and sisters of the Lord. And then Cephas, who's that? Who's Cephas? Peter. Peter. Cephas is an Aramaic name for Peter. And there are times when Peter was called Cephas, which both words mean rock. So, and by the way, that's, that's really intriguing. I, I mean, it really is, that, 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 that verse 5, because we do know that Peter took his wife with him. And as a matter of fact, uh, it, it, remember, it is God's will for you to go to Israel with me. So I just want to remind you of that. But when you go to Israel with me, I will take you to Capernaum, and Capernaum was the home base of Jesus' Galilean ministry for two years. And they found Peter's house there. And it's, it's really quite a remarkable fire. And we'll see that. And we know where Peter lived in Capernaum. His, he was born in, uh, as you know, at least I think you know, Bethsaida. But he and his family moved the fishing business to Capernaum, which was more centrally located in Galilee. And so Peter, and that's where he lived. That's where his wife lived. We do not know if they had children. Uh, Jesus uh, ministered, as you might remember, to Peter's mother-in-law, who was sick. I mean, I, I'm just trying. All of these things are really important. So Paul is saying, I'm like every other apostle. I could bring along a believing wife. Now, as we talked earlier in chapter 7, it's my conviction, as many, that Paul is a widower. Paul's wife had died. There's some reasons why we said and we talked about that. So why is he saying this? He's just saying, look, as an apostle, I'm not any different than any other apostles. If I'd want to, I could bring a believing wife with me. And then the third one is in verse 6, and it really, he, he has an extended discussion of this in verses 6 through 14. Or do only Barnabas and I have a right to refrain from working? So Paul's a freeloader. Paul's on welfare. Paul is into the entitlement program of the Roman Empire. Is that what he's talking about? Uh, those last two questions were supposed to be humorous, but nobody's smiling, so you must not have gotten them. Okay. Fred, it's a tough crowd today. Oh, my goodness. Um, okay. All right. See, we're waiting for Wood. That's where Woody would Yeah, you're right. Um, so he's saying something here, again, that at first you don't get it. Uh, what does this mean, to refrain from working? Let your eye go to verse 14. So the Lord directed that those who proclaim the gospel should get the living from the gospel. So Paul is saying, as an apostle... I have a right for financial support. I have a right 
And this is a principle that he lays down in Galatians 6, in 2 Corinthians, that those who are ministered to have the responsibility to help support those that minister to them. Your pastor is the primary example of that in your life. And so Paul is saying something that comes really from the mouth of Christ in his instructions in Matthew 10, that those who serve and minister in my name have the right to receive support. Let's put it another way. That's what we put it in the 21st century. Their full-time ministry is, that is for which they are paid, is. And that's really hard in the first century. It was very difficult. It was almost impossible. And Paul, as you think know, had a part-time job. Remember what it was? He made tents. He was a tent maker. As were uh, uh, Aquila and Priscilla. They were in that same business that's talked about a little bit in Acts. So I'm hoping you're with me. He's itemizing his rights. I'm like you. I have the freedom to eat and drink whatever I want. The kosher laws no longer apply. If I want to, I have the right to bring a relieving wife with me, as many of the other apostles have done. And thirdly, I have the right to financial support. But he felt the need. Maybe he needed to explain it. Maybe there was some controversy with this. But he needed to explain verse 6. And so he offers four specific examples of this. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? So the first example is an example from everyday life. You know, in Corinth, there would have been a number of them. You look at look in, in Corinth down the street, you see some Roman legionnaires walking. Are, are they doing that on their own? Your dad's in the vineyard business. Um, he doesn't eat any grapes. Or your uncle is a, a sheep herder or a goat herder. He doesn't benefit from the animals he's herding. See, it's so proud. Oh, okay. I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment. Does not the law also say the same things? So verse 9, he cites something from the law, from Deuteronomy 25. Where in the law of Moses it says you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. What does that mean? Do you understand what that means? The threshing ox, do you understand what that means? Well, I think so, yeah. But the muzzle was something put over their mouth so they couldn't eat. All right. And they're working, I mean. Yeah, I mean, they're working for you. They're threshing the grain. You know, it's, they kind of walk on a, on, a, on a circular thing, and they're actually propelling this grinding millstone that's grinding the, the, uh, the grain. And so uh, he says, you know, it's inconceivable that you would not have around your ox a little pouch where he can eat as he's threshing. Um, you're not going to muzzle him. No. And Paul says, really, God's not concerned about oxen here. He's speaking for your own sake. Yes, for our sake it's written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher ought to thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we sowed spiritual things, is it too much if we should reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we do not use this right, but we endure all things that we might cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. 
see what he's saying. We have every right to ask for your financial support, but we don't do it. So now he's finally getting to the point. I have the right to financial support, but I don't insist on it. And he says we endure all things. We refrain from doing it because I don't want anything to hinder the gospel. Because, listen, in that culture, the Greco-Roman culture, there were people coming through town all the time, and you would go pay and listen to them teach. Paul did not want to be associated with that crowd. I am not here to do anything that's going to hinder the gospel. So he gives it up. Do you see what he's doing? He itemizes who he is, an apostle. He itemizes his rights as an apostle. And he's just told us we're willing to give that up so that nothing can hinder the spread of the gospel. How do we apply something like this? Now, obviously, you didn't hear that question, so I'll repeat it. Um, How do we apply teaching like this? We're not apostles. At least, I don't think anyone around this table is. Uh, I I don't know all of you, but I don't think you've seen personally the Lord Jesus Christ who commissioned you. Maybe he did. I don't know that, but... So I'm going to assume most of us, if not all of us, are not apostles. So how do we apply something like this? Andrew? I, I guess what I'm taking away from it is, you know, I have a, a brother-in-law who is in the ministry, and he's, he's been with Campus Crusade or Crew for a number of years, and he's now uh, diving in with a, with a church plant. <clears throat> for his first year there, he has to raise half of his salary that they're mm. giving him. So he's continuing... He's been, his whole salary for the past however many years has been through asking for financial support and all that. And I know that there are those that don't think that he's deserving of it because he doesn't, quote, have a real job like the rest of us, or some might keep, try to keep tabs on what he's doing with the money that they are, they are donating. And, um, you know, just... Something that particularly um, came to me when, when I was thinking about that was uh, who serves as a soldier is his own, mm. at his own expense. I mean, he's he's a soldier with the arm with God's armor yeah, yeah. <laughs> going out there, and so um, I mean, if anything, I'm, I'm going to remember this if I hear any belly aching about yeah. giving yeah. you know to him I, I'll have a little defense for him but. well it's a very biblical yeah. perspective yeah. On, on, on this whole area and that's good any other way to apply this to our lives I think the Moody professors have uh, they have to raise their own uh, or they don't no. what, what, what's that situation not Moody uh, the uniqueness of Moody is they don't charge tuition for undergraduate education yeah. They charge room board, all the fees, all the books, but they don't charge tuition. But no, the faculty members, they don't have to raise their own support. There is a school in Alaska where uh, the faculty has to raise their own support, but not Moody. I don't think this answers your question necessarily, but it seems to me like, like what you're talking about, my mind goes, there's, I think there would always, always be like this rub that you'd have with, with people that proclaim to be Christians but don't understand 
what you talked about right now, and so the rub of not supporting the path or looking at mm -hmm. them in different ways, you know, like how hard would it be for some of these pastors to, or people that are commissioned by Christ to, to raise their support where people don't have this view, mm -hmm. you know, of, of those people that they're, they're being fed by. As an old Baptist pastor used to tell the story, the elder board chairman would always say, Lord, you keep him humble, we'll keep him poor. Isn't that horrible? You know, from a, from a kind of on an individual or personal level, I mean, you have to look at Paul here, who, who mm -hmm. could have asked for you know, financial remuneration for Absolutely. what he was doing. But he chose ministry, and he mm -hmm. chose caring for those people above that. He didn't want anything in any way to interfere with his ability or his reputation. That's right. His, anything that would hurt his reputation. Right. So, I mean, I think it's an amazing time. example of, of focus and dedication, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and maybe to the extent that any of us are involved in ministering to other people, mm -hmm. it's, it's what we would mm -hmm. do mm -hmm. because we want to see change lives, mm -hmm. because we want to impact someone's life. Mm -hmm. And never expecting anything in return. Exactly. I mean, and, and, I mean, that return doesn't necessarily have to be money. I mean, it could easily, could easily be recognition yeah. or, yeah. you know, pride stroked or, you know. Or even, as he's going to intimate later on, even the knowledge and the confidence that the Lord is going to say to him, well done, yeah. good faith, sir. Yeah. Well, just, seeing, right. just seeing some of his, what, what you talked about here earlier, right? I mean, just seeing how God's worked in the people that, I mean, at the payment, it would be, you know, that if you see, see somebody that you've invested in mm -hmm. that has gone on to do great things, yeah. you, know, you know, that you... You had a role in that. You had a role in that. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, yeah. that, that would be payment. Absolutely. Know. And that is certainly something that he says, and certainly, I think, something that... For those that are in ministry, and I've been in ministry all my adult life, that is one of the great rewards to see some person you had some role in, in my case, in education... And you hear about them 20 years later, so, oh my goodness, I had a tiny little role in that. Let's kick it up to another level. What about this matter, which is the overarching point Paul is making? You have rights, but you're willing to surrender the rights for the sake of others. How do we apply that to our lives? Setting aside and everything you said, because that was the first thing I wanted to do, and you guys really got that issue of ministry and so on. Now let's kick it up to another. Let's personalize it, because most of you around the table are not involved in ministry in a full-time sense. We all, in one sense or another, are involved in some kind of ministry. But I'm talking about you know full-time sense. So setting that aside, but how do we apply that to our lives, just more generally? What would be examples? What would be illustrations? What would be uh, uh, circumstances where you or I might be called upon to where I mean we'd have to choose to do this but we're going to surrender some of our rights as Christians for the sake of somebody else what would be an illustration of that <clears throat> maybe if you're in your, your worst enemy you know that someone else has a better skill set than you do for something you just remove 
yourself to allow them mm. the ability to get something accomplished. To learn, grow, develop in ways that maybe would not have occurred if you stepped into the picture. Okay. Okay. You know, I've been in, had the opportunity to be in <clears throat> leadership roles in different places on a church board or on a uh, not-for-profit, you know, Christian organization board, and you know, to do that does require that you suspend. I think some of the some of the things that you I mean it does mean sacrificing personal time. It maybe does mean giving up um, things that you would enjoy doing because the, the mission requires you to spend mm -hmm. the time over here. So, I mean, even though you'd have the right to do those things, you're sacrificing those in order for the benefit of the gospel and the, and the organization that you're associated with. Good. That's okay. That's good. Giving up certain things, surrendering certain things, setting aside certain things, which they're, they're, we're not talking in any way here about things that are sinful. We're <coughs> talking about things you have an absolute right and absolute uh, opportunity to enjoy, but you're not I'm setting it aside for something greater. Well, that thought too is there, I don't know, I don't have a completed thought around this, but it seems responsibility keeps kind of coming to my mind. Like, my understanding of rights is also responsibility that you have, mm -hmm. you know, as well to. Not only just approach it that way and, and be humble, but not, but you have kind of a responsibility to be proactive in doing something, you know, as, as, as going down that road, you know, and the result would be being humble and acting, you know, like the way James talked about. I think so. Uh, I think so. Even uh, certain attitudes and demeanors that you have, uh, as well as is let, let's let me be specific here. Is time an example something you might set aside? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it really, it really is. Uh, opportunities for relaxation and leisure and rest. Yeah, and in some ways. I mean, there's a family issue here too. I mean, I mean, you, you're sacrificing there time is. that you'd normally be investing maybe with your wife mm -hmm. or your children or your grandchildren. And, I mean, you're giving up something that's very valuable yeah. Yeah. in order to pursue something that you see as. Maybe you say, I have a right to be with her. I have a right to be. I have a right to do this. It's even something I'm free to do it. But you're <coughs> setting it aside. Even even giving up time for rest. I mean, I think about. One of the mission trips that I, you know, went on, we were is a worship team mission trip, and we did, we traveled around Japan, and we would do maybe three worship concerts a, you know, a day, and it's like you're thinking you need time for rest, but it was just amazing. We had a right to that. We didn't do it. We, you know, we did what we thought God was had us there for, and it was just amazing to see how God gave us the strength that we needed when we needed mm -hmm. it, and we had we He gave us the time to rest when we needed. It. We, we would we never. Will run down, so it's even time. It's even giving your your right to rest, mm -hmm. you know, as well. This is this is just an area, and and the challenge sometimes is you're reading this. Well, that's Paul; he's an apostle, and I'm trying to get you away from that. Although that is extremely important to understand what he's saying and why he's saying what he's saying, but to apply it to our lives. If you are a parent. That is a very, very, very important responsibility God's given to you. But if you're going to be an effective parent, you are going to have to give up your rights sometime. 
I, I don't know this for certain, but I think everybody around the table is married. If you're married, the moment you said I do, immediately, immediately going with that, is you are going to have lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of examples where you're going to have to give up some of your rights for the sake of your wife. And if you don't know what I mean, you're not really married. <laughs> but I, I mean, it's being being an other-centered person means I do set aside my rights for the sake of others. Even in your work, I mean, I think if you supervise people, you know, they do the same thing you're talking about there. You would do to a degree at work as well. That's right. Because the model in Scripture is servant leadership. And by its definition, servant leadership means to serve is to lead, and to lead is to serve. But to serve means you're giving up something. Because as a leader, obviously, you're the dictator, you're the authoritarian, you're the autocrat, you just demand, demand, demand. That's not servant leadership. That's not the leadership Christ talks about. So I'm trying, and, and I think I'm, I'm succeeding to God's glory. You're getting it. This is a passage that we have to understand applicationally that this is more than just about Paul giving up his rights as an apostle. He's using this because you have to connect chapter 8 and chapter 9. He's using this as an example. This is what it means to give up your rights for the sake of others. I'm an apostle, I proved it to you. I have apostolic rights. I've laid them out, but I don't demand them for the sake of others. He's going to say over in verse 22, I become all things to all men that I may win some. It's almost like Paul's saying, whatever it takes, I am willing to do it. I mean, I'm not going to pound the table on any rights, make any demands, whatever it takes, I'm willing to do it. And I believe that, I'm trying to choose my words carefully, I believe that that is a sign of growth and maturity in our walk with God. The less we think about self and the more we think about others is evidence of that real transforming grace of God through his spirit at work in our lives. So there, I mean, there clearly is a balance to be achieved oh, sure. here as well. I mean, oh, yeah. so elsewhere in scripture, the man doesn't take care of his family is worse than a heathen. That's right. I mean, so you can't, no. you can't get yourself in a circumstance where you're just throwing yourself in a, your entirety no. into ministry while your children go. No. As a matter of fact, I think that's why one of the reasons I used the example of being a parent that fits into this. You have young children, and you're spending 90 hours, 90 hours a week in ministry. That's, you're out of balance. You're out of balance because God, I've, I've said this to a number of young couples at our church. Some of the gals, you know, they, a couple of them have three or four children under eight. <laughs> Their primary ministry in life are those children. 
And the husband in that, his, one of the primary things he has to focus on is how can I be a part of ministering and serving these kids? I mean, you, you, that's how you have to look at life because ministry is, and I'm glad Jim quoted that verse, ministry is first and foremost to your family. Because Paul says if you're not caring for your family, you're just like a heathen. I mean, that's in, in direct sin, First Timothy, that's exactly what he's saying. So, I mean, that, it's, it, that's why ministry and service and giving up your rights, if you're a parent, if you have two children under the age of three, you're giving up a lot of rights. Sleep, you're not, you're not functioning very well, everything, those selfish, self-centered kids. I mean, you know, baby, if you want evidence of falling a baby, they are going to make your life miserable until you meet their needs, right? I mean, that's by definition what a baby is. It's similar to teenagers, they will life, make your life miserable until you meet their needs. Now, that's supposed to be humorous, but nobody's <laughs> getting it. Okay. But teens are, in a way, like that, you know, it, in a totally different manner. But it's how do you serve? How, what's it mean? What's giving up my rights for my children? What's giving up my rights for my teenagers look like? That can be so difficult. I, mean, I, I feel that. It is. It's I huge. I'm with that all the time, to be more involved in ministry, but yet I have three kids, nine, seven, and four, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, so when I talk about this quite often, and uh, that's, that can be tough. Well, I think that's something you, you constantly, constantly have to be checking yourself on that, and you know, you, you, you're asking and, and feeling in a sense that, what would be the word stress, or that responsibility might be a better word, responsibility. I'm writing an article right now, I'm just about done with it, on, uh, for a publication on, uh, a teen ministry, and uh, I, I really wow. agreed to do it because uh, the church I'm involved in, we're, I've chaired a task force on uh, putting a whole new model of uh, youth ministry together. Because most people are concluding, and I think correctly, that the te- youth ministry model we've used in America since World War II isn't working. It hasn't worked. It's not been a good model. Your church is really working on that too at Brookside. But, and I, one of the things I've concluded is that youth ministry must be as much about serving the teens as well as serving the parents. As a matter of fact, there's a model out there right now saying that youth ministry, a youth minister should spend one-third of his time with the teens, one-third of his time with the volunteers in that ministry, and a third of his time with parents. Isn't that an interesting model? The reason it's so important is what's developed in America is, and it's really, it really took hold after World War II, it exploded in the 80s, was the idea, you know, kids get to be about 13, 14, parents deliver them all, okay, I've had 13, now you take it from here. They, I mean, they may not even consciously think that, that in a sense is the way they're looking at it. Okay, from here on out, you bring my kids to spiritual maturity. That's a disastrous way to look at it. And I think one of the really, really key passages on that is Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 through 9. And there you see, Moses is talking about, okay, what do you do with your kids? Well, the major proposition is, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. What do you do with that? You love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then what do you do? Teach it to your kids.
And I think what we have to do is get back to parents, the church, and the parents work together in raising the kid. If the church, if the church doesn't look at it that way, or more importantly, perhaps, if the parents don't look at it that way, then we should not be surprised at some of the choices our kids are making. So being a parent means that you must be willing to give up certain rights. And then you have to figure out what that means. <laughs> and every one of your kids is different, and every one of them is unique. Isn't that fun being a parent? It's just an extraordinary responsibility. Have we done enough to get you thinking applicationally about this? This is pretty powerful stuff, man. It really is. And if your kids are all raised and they're all gone, think of your spouse. Think of your grandchildren. Think of your church, others, neighborhood. All right. Let me look with you at verse 15. We've got a few more minutes. But I have used none of these things. What things? What he was talking about in his rights. I have not pounded the table on any of these. And I'm not writing these things that it may be done so in my case, for that would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. You understand? What he's saying there is I'm not saying this so that you're now going to say, okay, Paul, sorry, all your rights here, here's all your rights, get to it. That's not what I'm doing. For I preach the gospel. If I preach the gospel, verse 16, I have nothing to boast of, for I'm under compulsion. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. My primary mission in life is to preach the gospel. For I do this voluntarily. If I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if it's against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. <clears throat> That's very important. What does the word stewardship mean? It's the Greek word oikonome. We get our word economy from that. But what does stewardship mean in English? A caretaker. Caretaker? Responsibility to cultivate the Yeah, very deep responsibility to cultivate, develop but something. Not, but not an owner. Not an owner. Yeah. That's right. Good. Yeah. That's that's exactly. You don't own it. Someone has entrusted you with something. Yeah, I mean, someone's entrusted something. So, who entrusted what to Paul? Christ entrusted him as a part of the Christ people. entrusted the gospel and all that went with it to Paul. So why is Paul doing what he's doing? For, for a reward? Well, that's part of it. He's going to talk about that. But the primary reason he does it is this is a stewardship. Okay, now let's think about our lives. We are willing to give up our rights for the sake of others. What stewardship have you been entrusted with? All kinds of them. If you're a parent, you have a stewardship. They're your kids. And I'm finding, uh, although my kids are both married and, 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 and you know, very, we're, we're very pleased and proud of them both, but that stewardship hasn't ended. They still call me. Hey, Dad, I'm thinking about this. What do you think? You know, it's, <laughs> and that's great. I absolutely love that in that they both stay in constant communication with us, but this hasn't ended. It's very different. It takes on a totally different perspective. 
You're married, again, that's a stewardship. Something has been entrusted to you. You have your, all of you have your employment, you know, responsibility. That's a stewardship. But you also have this spiritual stewardship with kids, with your wife, with others. If you're involved in your church or, like Jim said, in you know, another parachurch or church ministry or boards or whatever it is, they're stewardship. Do you, to some degree, is your possessions? I'm sorry? Does your possessions? Your possession, your material. Absolutely, absolutely. The money you have, whatever your homes. I mean, all of those things, they're all stewardship. Listen, if there's any proposition that comes from the Bible, it's got two parts to it. Part one is God owns everything. Part two, God's in control of everything. The Bible's very clear on that. Which means I may have a deed to my property on Coal Creek Circle, but what's the Bible say? God really owns that. He's entrusted it to me as a stewardship. God's given me two children and a wife. That's a stewardship. And I'm accountable to him. Paul is saying that to us. What he does, he looks at from the perspective of a stewardship. And listen, a steward is always accountable. Isn't that right? It matters. And the perspective on that is an eternal perspective. It really matters. I don't know about you. Someone one time said to me a long time ago, there's only one thing you can take to heaven with you, your children. Can't take anything else to heaven. Can't take your wealth. Can't take your money. Isn't that true? The only thing you can take with you to heaven is your children. Nothing else you'll take. And I hope you understand what I mean by that. And I think that's, that's, a steward, that's a stewardship motivator. It really, really, really matters. Then he comes in verse 18 in this matter of what, what then is my reward? He acknowledges that. Well, when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not make full use of my right as the gospel. He doesn't charge. For although I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, and I might win the more. There's that idea of servanthood. That idea of a leader is someone who serves. It, that's absolutely astonishing when you think of the first century. But Now he's very specific. Verse 20, to the Jews I became a Jew that I might win Jews. He said, well, wait a minute, Paul is a Jew. Ethnically, he is a Jew. So what does he mean, I became a Jew? Well, I don't know. Let me, can I illustrate this? You might remember there are two instances where Paul went to Jerusalem. Oh, actually, there are more than that, but two specific instances where the Jewish leadership challenged him about. One, he tells us in Galatians, I took Titus up. Titus was a Greek. And I said, Titus doesn't have to be circumcised. I'm not going to make that a big deal. He tells us in another place, he took Timothy up with him to Jerusalem, and he had Timothy circumcised. Why did he do that? You know, in that circumstance, that very volatile situation, he realized, if I don't accommodate this issue, I'm going to lose the opportunity to, to minister to people. So, okay, we'll flex with it. Because he says circumcision really doesn't mean anything anymore. But I'll do it. 
Did Paul, see what I'm saying? Paul's flexible. Paul knew when to be flexible and to set aside certain things to accomplish the greater objective. To those under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, I might win those who are under the law. Okay, who are those? There's a lot of debate about that, but probably those Gentiles who became Jews, proselytes. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being under the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. That's Gentiles. And to the weak, verse 22, I became weak. Weak, put it in the context of chapter 8, the weak, the con- weak conscience, the person just come a believer. And then the general statement, I become all things to all men, that I may be all men, means save some. Paul's not talking here about adopting or accommodating to a sinful lifestyle. That's not what he's talking about. He's not, okay, if I'm uh, in, a, in a drunken debauch situation, I'm just going to participate in it so that I can. That's not what he's talking about. Paul had an amazing ability, an amazing sent- sentiment. He knew exactly when he could accommodate to accomplish that greater goal. I think that takes great wisdom so that he can accomplish this task, this stewardship, uh, which, is, which is the gospel. We've got a couple of minutes. Let's think about applying that principle to our lives. Your, your father, your son comes to you and says, Dad, Let's go rock climbing. I don't know about my, my son never did, but if my son would have come to me and said, Dad, let's go out to Estes Park, California, uh, Colorado, and climb a mountain, I would have said, Jonathan, you're out of your mind. There is no way I'm doing that. I'm saying that somewhat facetiously, but there were many, many, many things I did with my son that I really didn't want to do. Do you know what a tractor pull is? I probably went to a dozen tractor pulls. I wish I could tell you I thoroughly enjoyed them. They're incredibly loud. What? It seems out of character. <laughs> I out of character. I don't know how to take the what? I can see you buying the t-shirts. You can, okay. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, say, I'm, saying, I'm saying that because that's the sense, I hope you're getting that, that's the sense of what Paul is saying here. I was willing to accommodate not engage in sinful debauch. That's not what he's talking about. To accommodate, to serve, to win the right, to speak the truth. Whatever it takes. You do that with your children. You do that with your spouse. I mean, I, and this is a ridiculous example, but I absolutely detest shopping. I, I mean, I hate to shop. When my shopping to me is I know exactly what I want. I go in to buy it and leave. But I'm an event-specific, obsessive, targeted person. As my wife says, honey, I enjoy the process. And that's, that's, that's a woman. That's a wife. She enjoys the process of things. Okay, if I love her, then I have to understand that. And I, okay, I'm willing to go shopping with you, honey. I grit my teeth. I'm, 
my fists are tightening, but oh, it's wonderful to be shopping, honey. This is really fun. I become all things to all men. In your work, there are certain things you may not enjoy doing, but to accomplish the great, to serve others. I mean, that's the, I hope you, I'm trying to get you to think applicationally about this stuff, because this is Paul, the great Paul. Bring it down to your level. What does it mean to be all things to all people that I might serve them? So I want you to, I, I hope, and that was my prayer as I was coming, I hope this chapter makes you a bit uncomfortable. If it didn't, you weren't listening. <laughs> but it, in the sense, I don't mean uncomfortable for the sake of being uncomfortable, but Lord, help me to understand and apply some of this to my life. That's what I'd like you to leave with. What does that mean in my marriage? What does that mean in my workplace? What does that mean with my children? That I'm willing to give up the things that I have a right to, my time, sleep, certain activities, etc., 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 for the sake of others. That's that honestly, I hope you leave with that, thinking about that. And don't ever stop thinking about it. Because that's constantly a part of just like living. Does that make sense as we leave? It does require a degree of discernment. It does. How you it really does what you choose to do. It does. Because there are some things that you could be asked to do that would build a relationship maybe with somebody which would require a greater degree of spiritual compromise for your mm -hmm. life that you might then you might be willing to do. That's right. And I, again, uh, as with so many things, that the, the balance of it comes with wisdom and discernment, discretion. And they're all the things that are part of, uh, of, uh, of, of our lives and how we exercise those. Well, I'll tell you what. Any other questions, thoughts before we leave? I want to pray. Next week, I'll say a few things additionally about uh, Chapter 9. But next week... The Apostle Paul goes into chapter 10, which is a negative example. Paul offers himself as a positive example of those of someone who has rights, has freedoms, has great things entrusted, but is willing to set them aside for it. Now he's going to use an example of something negative. He's going to use the children of Israel. And it's, it's quite penetrating, so that's uh, how we'll look at chapter 10. Lord, we're thankful for the time we've had here today. Thanks for the men that are willing to come and uh, just allow the Holy Spirit of God who inspired this, this word, this, uh, this book, the Bible, for our benefit. And as we've studied and looked and hopefully, Lord willing, have tried to apply this to our lives, uh, help us as men to not be pounding the table, always insisting on our rights, our time, that it's ours, our possessions are ours. All of the things that sometimes you're asking us to set those aside to serve someone else, our kids, our wife, people in the workplace, people at our church, in other ministries, whatever we might be involved in. And that takes great wisdom. It creates discernment how to apply these things. But help us. Stretch us. Teach us greater dependence on you. Give us your wisdom. Give us opportunities, those divine appointments that are ways in which we can show our dependence on you, but also that truly, Lord, we seek. We seek to represent you. Help us to represent you well. And in that we pray. Amen.
See you next week.